0: The following Dharma talk was given by Jodi Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see a full zendo today. It's great. Um, I hope you're good. Today I would like to take up a koan called, from the hidden lamp called The Old Woman's Miraculous Powers. Magu, Nanquan and another monk were on a pilgrimage. Along the way, they met a woman who had a tea shop. The woman prepared a pot of tea and brought out three cups. She said to them, "O monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. That's it. (laughs) The three looked at each other and the woman said, Watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. Then she picked up the cups, poured tea and went out. So that's the koan. It's from a book called The Hidden Lamp, which is a a collection of koans about women, written by women. Um, And at the time it came out a few years ago, it was pretty unprecedented as far as um, books written by women about women and koans. When I began studying years ago, there was two that I knew of, um, Iron Iron Grindstone Lou. Um, There was the Pang family, Mrs. Pang and her daughter, who were enlightened. And most of them were old tea women by the side of the road. (laughs) I asked my teacher about that once. How come we're always like old tea women on the side of the road? They were very important. So, and also recently, of course, um, there's other lamps that have been burning that are being uncovered uh, to benefit everyone, all different kinds of voices coming forward because we practice in a body. It's said that a human birth is advantageous birth because only as a human being can one awaken. So we need to hear all voices that have awoken. So koans are meetings or encounters in intimacy of the great matter of life and death that we all are part of. And the word koan is translated as public case. Uh, Heinrich Dumoulin, who wrote a history of, of Zen Buddhism, quite a good Historical account says, A koan presents a challenge and an invitation to take seriously what has been announced. So, the koan was presented. We should take seriously and ponder what has been announced. Sit with it. Respond to it. Ruth Fuller Sasaki said, I've never found a koan to be paradoxical except to those who view it from the outside. When it is resolved, it is realized to be a simple, clear view of the consciousness it helped to awaken. So they're seemingly paradoxical. We can't always go to our mind to figure out a koan. It's a whole body-mind experience, and sometimes we have to drop into a more direct, intuitive um, encounter with ourselves. Dido would say, my teacher Dido Roshi would say, it's a full-bodied, wholehearted meeting of one's own intimate and direct experience of the universe and its infinite facets. So it's a koan is a kind of family reunion <laughs> with the whole universe. It's a prompt, a suggestion, an encounter, but there's a, something that's going on within it that's speaking to this great matter of life and death. Alan Watts, I, I like to say, on the zen arts, what are the zen arts? He says, it's effing the ineffable. It's effing what we can't really grasp, but it's, it's something that's true and alive. So here we are. We all have, we're all meeting this old woman by the side of the road who has some tea for us. And I was struck by the simplicity of this when I read it and the depth in it that's not on the surface. Just a couple of guys encountering this old woman. Do you want some tea? And they, they don't know what, show me your miraculous powers. And then she says, I'll show you mine. And she pours it and leaves. What's going on? So she's pointing out a way of using our mind, living our life, an attitude of how we might see and understand or misunderstand all that we do, everything we do from morning till night. Let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Let those of you with miraculous powers have a cookie today. Who has miraculous powers? So this koan, when you enter, you have to enter a koan. You have to enter the situation. You have to imagine the scene. So these three monastics, Magu, Nankwen, and another monk, are traveling all day. They're tired and they're thirsty. And, oh, somebody's got some tea. That sounds really good. They really want a cup of tea. And they're used to receiving offerings because they're monastics and they're in that um, culture that, you know, offers things to monastics. And this woman, woman, um, woman begins serving them a very surprising challenge. Let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. And they're like, Dead silence. And they're kind of like, imagine, like, we're now like looking at each other, like, who's going to come forth and say, Well, I've got some miraculous powers. (laughs) Because in the tradition, a monastic's not supposed to claim to have, you know, Buddha said, don't be claiming like you can like levitate or fly around or you're clairvoyant. Just like, don't even speak about it. So they know this, of course. And they'd really like to have a warm cup of tea. So there they are. And I can imagine uh, this old woman having a little chuckle inside at their, watching their dilemma as they, like, and meanwhile, no tea has been poured, right? So she says, I'll offer you my miraculous powers. She picks up the cups, pours the tea, and left. So, what do we see about our lives and what's presented in this koan? How do we view the ordinary acts of our lives? When I gave the liturgy talk last week or in Fusatsu, I mentioned how Dogen pointed and taught the very ordinary things we do, our um, sacred activity, and that we can really um, enter just brushing our teeth, using the lavatory, taking a bath, putting our shoes on. We spend our lives doing very ordinary things, riding the subway, having a soy latte, green tea, texting, sitting down at a computer, using our credit cards. Thousands of ordinary acts that we do every day. I don't know that any of us present our credit card and go, how miraculous! <laughs> and draw. And some of the, when I do drawing retreats, and people are coming to the monastery, you know, we, sometimes they'll give their credit card and sign it, no problem. They get to the drawing class and they can't make a mark. And I said, you signed your credit card so miraculously. What's happening now that you can't make a line? Where do we change over? So it's like we arbitrarily make some things in our life very important and other things unimportant. And what are we calling unimportant? and what we do call unimportant we may not pay much attention to like cleaning our bathroom or cleaning the sink or that something, brushing our teeth, straightening, taking a dead leaf off a plant. We space out. So most likely when we want to accomplish all these things and we're thinking about something else. Our minds are leaning out and straining forward into the future, heading to the next important thing that we need to do and hope that it's something better, more special ahead. never know you know this. Someday we hope it won't be. We won't be ordinary. You know this feeling? Like, what's next? What do I have to, like, get through so I can, like, live and do the thing that's important? I do that. I've done that. Once this is done, then I'll get back to my life. Even in meditation it might play out, and how we can get quite lost in seeking a remarkable mind state, or holding on to certain states as they appear, like we feel a little bit calm, and it's like, what's that? We gotta, like, keep that, <laughs> don't want that to go away. I remember um, bringing something to my teacher, this was Dido, I was like, everything kinda went black and fuzzy. and. Um, he said, I think you're just sleepy. <laughs> and rang the bell. <laughs> and I was slightly embarrassed. And But when I really looked at it, I, I did. I wanted to present like something special had happened. Like I was in samadhi. You know, it all went black and fuzzy, and I couldn't see anything. I was falling away. And he's just like, I, I think you're just tired. <laughs> Go get some coffee. (laughs) And Dido always, to me, demonstrated in his movements and attention and responses so very simply the functioning of mystical power, of this mystical power, just how he moved about. Like when I'd watch him cook something and how he was just, just doing that how he would take care of like a bag. He would fold like a bag after he shopped or something, like each corner and fold it. You know, he didn't just stuff it somewhere. He really respected the material and his his own life and this object. It was miraculous. I could feel this like sacredness in the activity. That's what Dogen was speaking about. Entering a space, he would be so still and silent that he would scare many of us. They'd be right next to us, and we never heard him come. <laughs> Anybody have that? Some of you may not know him. But he moved that way. And what allowed that was because he was just doing what he was doing. He wasn't trying to get anywhere. He was just, you know, he'd say, hi, Hoja, I'd like fly off my seat. He wrote, if our lives are truly filled with the miraculous, why do we experience so much pain and suffering, so much greed, anger, and ignorance? He writes, the key lies in stopping our internal dialogue and allowing ourselves to realize the moment-to-moment reality of our life. When we become conscious of our lives and unify our thoughts, our energy, Our internal light shines without hindrance. So we fill with that naturalness and that wonder. Diane Ackerman, in her book, I was remembering a line she said, she said, Shaped like a little loaf of French country bread, our brain is a crowded chemistry lab bustling with nonstop neural conversations. And that may be true, but we get involved in it. I mean, there's always thought sometimes, but we can just allow that to be what it is and focus on what we're doing. And I think as we know, most of us arrived as children with a very keen sense of wonder. Just arriving and being alive in the world with such an abundance of interesting things. It was a constant sensory finding of amazing stimulating and miraculous things remember <laughs> and some of you who have little children you might see how they meet the world that way like they can just stare at something or we used to play with like keys like that was like you know or like a button um it was just like a long time i remember um uh watching ants go around some ice cream of mine that dripped. And it was like a whole day affair, (laughs) like just watching this parade of ants on this ice cream. Or my cat just licking itself. Yeah. I was just did a podcast on... um, art practice and Zen practice. It was a, on uh, s- different spiritualities and, um, that people have. And um, the interviewer asked, what do I remember from childhood about like, creative expression? And I, I remembered one of my first conscious experiences was sand and the texture and the, and the warmth and the feeling of sand. And in I, I could almost feel myself as this little body that could hardly stand and just sinking into this this material. Um, and then I, I was telling him that I in the I used to drawl in the dark, like some, some of us would go to bed with a flashlight to read our book and look at pictures, but I took a pencil, and whatever available light was in the room would shine on something, but you could never see all of it. So I would just take my pencil and draw the darkness and the light, leave the little bit of light that would define an object, right? It could be moonlight. It could be what was coming under the door. And I remember um, running up to my mom and saying, look what the moon did. And she was so excited with me. A, a Sangha member visited with their two-year-old, and we went up to the Zendo, and we were, I was showing them the instruments, and they took the mallet for the Han, and they just, and I said, and their mom was like, just hit it, buck," And oh my God, it was like miraculous, that one buck, And they looked, and there was fear, and there was like, and then all of a sudden, buck again. Again. And I was like, pretty good, let's do the run. <laughs> it was going. They could have gone on endlessly. Most of us had these feelings as a child. One session, I remember a group of us in the garden, a groundhog got in. Yukon was always on this thing with these groundhogs, and one got in the <laughs> garden and it slipped into a hole. And we were all at the hole, just like we must have spent, it felt like a half an hour, because it was looking back. We could see the whiskers and the eyeballs, but it was so exciting to just look in this hole for a long time. Yeah, I remember Yuna and I were cleaning out back, and we, were, we had to, for this HVAC, we had to take down this bike rack, which had rats like lots of them. We would hear them that, You know, while we were sitting. We'd hear a lot of talking going on back there. So we were cleaning it out. It was snowing. And when we finally got to their nest after removing stuff, it was like made of, it was this big ENSO, big circle. And it was padded with like everything that fell from the Y, or like Dorito chip bags and, and tires and whatever it could find hangers. And it was, we just stood there, you know, and just like looked at it for a while. It smelled terrible, but it was just so miraculous what they had built. Yeah. And so what happens to that sense of our miraculous? As we grow up, our experiences become routine, we get caught up in our adult responsibilities, habits. Life becomes like a habit. What we do every day get up, do this. So we meet what we want to control, but we can't. So, what happens to that sense of miraculous? And, um, how it's not based on conditions. It really is a way that we can see and be with ourself and with our world. And it made me think of, um, I don't know if any of you read An, An Interrupted Life, um, the life of Eddie Halesem." It's a Holocaust book. Um, she was a 27-year-old uh, woman, a Dutch uh, Jew, and she kept diaries which were found, which attempted to um, capture and record and bear witness to the evil that was oozing out um particularly in Amsterdam and um, in where she was in Westerbrook work at a transit camp until she was um, sent to Auschwitz, where she um was killed, was, was killed, but um, she discovered what we might call, she realized her Buddha nature. She realized the true body of reality. She called us this God. We might call it our Buddha nature. And she fought for it and found it. And I wanted to share her words with you. I was so, um, I I have to say, reading her diaries, I felt like if there's something called rebirth or reincarnation, I felt it with her in her writings about my own life. Listen to her her words describing a scene at Westerbork. I am hungry. I am with the hungry, with the ill-treated and dying every day. But I am also with the jasmine, and with that piece of sky beyond my window. There is room for everything in a single life. The sky is full of birds. Their purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women have sat down on the box for a chat. The sun is shining on my face. And right before our eyes, mass murder the whole thing is simply beyond comprehension i delight in warmth and security but i shall not rebel if i have to suffer cold should you so decree speaking of, of god i shall follow wherever your hands leads me and try not to be afraid i shall try not to spread some of i shall try to spread some of my warmth of my genuine love for others, wherever I go. The rottenness of others is in us, too. I really see no other solution than to turn inward and to root out all the rottenness there. I no longer believe that we can change anything in the world until we have first changed ourselves, and that seems to me the only lesson to be learned from a war, that we must look into ourselves And nowhere else there is goodness. It still all comes down to the same thing. Life is beautiful. And I believe in God. And I want to be there right in the thick of what people call horror and be able to say, life is beautiful and miraculous. So, she's not leaving anything out of what we encounter, that our powers are just enough as they are in every moment. No leaning out for the next thing, the more powerful thing, the more interesting thing. That we have to take the whole gestalt of our life. Eddie could see miraculous is embedded in the everyday not based on conditions. And she didn't ignore the reality that was right in front of her eyes. She couldn't. But there was a larger contact with aliveness that no one could give her and no one could take away. And she found it, her true self. The old woman has recaptured that sense of magic in that simple way. She sees the simple act of pouring tea as miraculous. How, how can we do it? How can we do it? How can we do it? The word miraculous is defined by some as wondrous, mind-blowing, astonishing, amazing, How can the ordinary acts of our lives be all this? It's amazing in a culture that she was in that drinks as much tea as China. Pouring tea must be the most ordinary and mundane thing to do. And in Japan, we saw the same act transformed into a tea ceremony. In Sashin, we see the act of taking a meal as Oriyuki. Master Bankai said, an old Zen master, I hope I have what he said. (laughs) Maybe I don't. Uh, No, oh yeah. No, I don't have what Bankai said. (laughs) Okay. I thought I did. Maybe I'll find it. Ah, he said, When asked what miraculous powers he has gained through Zen, he said, my miracle is that when I'm hungry, I eat, and when I'm tired, I sleep. That's his miracle. Once a monk asked Master Bai Zhang, what is the most extraordinary thing? Bai Zhang, whose name means Hero Peak, says, sitting alone on Hero Peak. What is the most extraordinary thing, sitting alone on Hero Peak? I remember early in my practice, part of the process, which is still in place, of becoming a formal student was to complete an all-day sit called Tangario. And at the end of the ceremony um, with the teacher, you have a, a tea. And I remember we had the tea, and then Dido said to the group of us, uh, be careful on your way home, because sometimes all day sits, you get kind of spacey. And I remember saying inside, oh, I don't do spacey. (laughs) I'm organized. I'm an alert person. I don't do spacey. And then I remember going to the next period of zaza, and I was like, what did you just say? (laughs) Spaced out. (laughs) how little I knew of myself at the time, and how that mudra shows us that, like, when we're spaced out, you know, you just, like, you're sitting there, and you realize in a few minutes you're, like, spaced out. Perhaps we harbor something very secret inside of us to get rid of all those unimportant things... Just occupy ourselves with what's important, special. But what is that? Maybe that's the allure of becoming rich, to get somebody to take care of um, all the things we don't want to do anymore. But it doesn't work. Because the experience of The importance of our experience is made up of all those little moments, all those details, extraordinary details. And we can't have the big moments without all the rest. If you want to see something miraculous, go in Kisei's studio. (laughs) How she turns a little... Le- part of a pine cone into roof shingles, or a stick, an ordinary stick into a magic wand. This is just driftwood, but but it's imbued with something. You know, I could I could break this so easily. It's a good stick for me because I could go, and it makes me gentle. Right, makes me very gentle. How do we access these everyday miracles? Well, it's easy and it's hard. (laughs) We just pay attention to each moment, everything we do, and the miraculous appears. Emily Dickinson, I love this line, she wrote, I know nothing in the world that has as much power as a word. That's for sure. Sometimes I write one, and I look at it, until it begins to shine. So mostly it has to do with intention, attention, attitude. And if we dismiss the everyday routines routines as something to get through, to make time for the meaningful, then we won't see the miraculous. Miraculous that's my experience when i'm doing that it all gets so dampened down just gets dampened down so to do this we do need to slow down pay attention regard each moment as equally important to another because if we don't we won't be we won't be present for the important ones either So Zazen, you know, I used to, when I first encountered Zazen, to sit for 35 minutes, I thought, this is, no, no, can't do it. Because I just felt I was so impetuous. I still am. Next, new, next, new, next, new. That was my beat. Just, just very impetuous, like, to the next thing. But it had me slow, way down, and work with my restlessness with that impetuousness. So I could really appreciate more just, just the small things that were happening. One teacher wrote, at any given moment, there may be two things happening. We are being present, or we are resisting being present. Distraction that pulls us away from the moment. If we look, look at the w- roots of the word distraction, It suggests being away from, going off track, and the way we go away from the present moment and lose our grounding. This is a quote from John Wellwood, who's a therapist who writes about spiritual practice and emotional groundedness. He said, Hard as this may be to grasp the Buddha, Our awakened mind in each person is whatever we are experiencing in that moment. The wind in the trees, the traffic on the freeway, the confusion you are feeling. If we but surrender to it, surrendering means to experience it fully, to give our attention without struggling against it or trying to make it something other than what it is. In opening to what is without strategies or agendas, we touch what cannot be grasped, the F of the ineffable, a moment of nowness, sharp and thin as a razor's edge. And walking on this razor's edge cuts through the struggle of self and other that separates us from a more immediate presence to life. So, we encounter this metaphor of walking the razor's edge in Zen, walking the sword's edge, because we can't grasp this moment. By the time we look at it, it's gone, and we're in the next moment. So, perhaps at some point, we can do walk through the walls of our mind That would be miraculous. (laughs) Our mind of separation, that's a superpower. That is a superpower. Nothing short of miraculous. Maybe our hearts can be so vast and full of kindness for ourselves and perhaps for those who are difficult. That would be miraculous. Maybe we can see what is true in our lives and not hate ourselves or blame. And this might be enough. And I was remembering a story that was in the Mountain Record um, of Mother Teresa. And she said, this was her encounter with... um, some poor people that were in very bad shape that were brought into um, her, her place, her, her, her um, mission. She said, the poor are wonderful people. One evening we went out and we picked up four people from the street and one of them was in a most terrible condition. And I told the sisters, you take care of the other three and I will take care of the one that looks the worse. So I did for her all that my love can do. I put her in bed. And there was such a beautiful smile on her face. She took hold of my hand. And she said only one word, thank you, and died. I could not help but examine my conscience before her. And I asked, what would I say if I was in her place? and my answer was very simple i would have tried to draw a little attention to myself i would have said i am hungry i am dying i am cold i am in pain or something this is mother teresa but she gave me so something so much more she gave me her grateful love and she died with a smile on your face on her face who could die like that without blaming anybody without cursing anybody without comparing anything that's the greatness of people that's miraculous power the woman in this koan knew that her powers were enough just as they are there was There was no leaning out for the next thing, what we think's better or more powerful or interesting. And she didn't even stick around to hear if they said thank you. (laughs) She just poured and she left. Where do we find ourselves? And so I end with a Rilke poem, which somebody sent me, not knowing... What I was talking about, I knew. They didn't know. But it was like such a gift to end this. And so it is, this is Rilke, and so it is that most people have no idea how beautiful the world is and how much magnificent is revealed in the tiniest things, in some flower, in a stone, in tree bark, or in a birch leaf. The grown-ups going about their business and worries and tormenting themselves with all kinds of details gradually lose the perspective for these riches that our children know when they are attentive and soon notice and love with their whole heart. And yet the greatest beauty would be achieved if everyone remained in this regard always like attentive, Children, simple insensitivities. and if people did not lose the capacity for taking pleasure as intensely in a birch leaf or a peacock's feather, or the wing of a hooded crow in a mighty mount, as in a mighty mountain or a splendid palace, what is small is not small in itself, just as that which is great is not great. A great and eternal beauty passes through the whole world, and it is distributed fairly over that which is small and that which is large. For in such important and essential matters, no injustice to be found on Earth. It's because we've learned to dismiss the ordinary rather than experience it fully that we take it to be ordinary. So, as you go about your extraordinary day, we, have to pra- we can practice this. We can practice the little things that we touch and see and are with, and that we're gifted enough to be human to awaken to, give it to each other. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center in New York City's programs, Retreats and Residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.